From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, hello and welcome to this post-Thanksgiving edition of Washington Watch. No leftovers here. All new stuff we're serving up today. In fact, coming up, it's not over until... The president-elect will be the president-elect when the electors vote for him. That was Missouri Senator Roy Blunt yesterday on CNN State of the Union. He joins us in just a moment. Also, with an update on the recount in Georgia, election law attorney Cleta Mitchell will join us uh, shortly here on Washington Watch. And legislators in Pennsylvania have introduced a resolution that, among other things, calls upon Congress to declare the selection of presidential electors in Pennsylvania to be in dispute. We'll talk about it with one of the sponsors, Pennsylvania State Representative Stephanie Borowitz. And I think that Supreme Court ruling on the religious gatherings is more illustrative of the Supreme Court than anything else. That was New York Governor Andrew Cuomo dismissing the Supreme Court ruling on the eve of Thanksgiving that acknowledged America's first freedom, the freedom of religion. He says it's mere politics. We'll talk about it with Attorney Joe Davis at Beckett Fund, who handled the case for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn. All that and more on this edition of Washington Watch. If you miss anything, check it all out later. TonyPerkins.com. It's all archived. Hey, let me uh, just kind of get the jump on this. As you know, the left has shown they will do anything and everything they can to stop the advancement of truth and of biblical values. That's why FRC is here in our nation's capital daily defending life, marriage, religious freedom for you and your family. And I invite you to join us by partnering with FRC through a special $100,000 Giving Tuesday Challenge Match. Now, we're starting today, beginning right now, a few hours early. That means your gift today will have double the impact in saving the freedoms we hold dear in America. To join us, give us a call, 800-225-4008. I've got folks standing by to take your call, 800-225-4008, or you can visit TonyPerkins.com. Right, the media is in a rush to sweep the Trump administration into the dustbin of history and move forward with an administration they can have influence over. So not content with themselves declaring Joe Biden president-elect, this has become their litmus test. This was from yesterday on CNN State of the Union address. President-elect technically has to be elected president by the electors. That happens in the middle of uh, December. And then January the 6th, I'm one of the four members of the Congress that uh, participates in the joint session that decides if those electoral right. votes are fully accepted. And, of course, that's when this process is over, when those votes are accepted and counted. That was uh, Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri with Dana Bash yesterday on CNN State of the Union. Uh, Senator Roy Blunt serves as chairman of the Senate Republican Policy Committee. He's also the chairman of the Senate Rules Committee, and he joins us now. Senator, welcome back to the program. Tony, always great to be with you and uh, great to be with, with you today on this, uh, this uh, week after one of our favorite holidays, Thanksgiving. Uh, it, it, it is one of my favorite. It's It's one that... You know, there's no pressure with buying gifts and all this stuff, although I, I love to give gifts. But it's just you just spend time with friends and family and you eat good food and you forget about how much weight you're going to gain. It's actually nice. <laughs> well, today's the day to remember that. But uh, we're moving forward now. That's exactly right. But great to be with you. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to talk about your comments yesterday because process matters here. And there are some that in the media from, I mean, election night – ready to sweep process under the rug, and the Trump administration put it in the rearview mirror so that they can have an administration, in my view, that they can exert more influence and control over. Well, I think that's right, and, and I think what you see here with the, all of this discussion about calling the election, as in many cases they've done that almost a month ago now, mm -hmm. uh, the day of the election, many cases they called it about two weeks before the election, is that the press decides that this is the official position that the country has to take. You know, there's a process to go through here. The process matters. Exercising all your rights under the process matters, whether it's at the counting center or whether it's later going to court and saying, here are problems that we think uh, have made a difference in this election and normally have to argue that it's a difference that would have changed the outcome. Uh, but there is a process, and as you pointed out in my comments Sunday, 
the electors vote in the various states the 14th of December, uh, that uh, the 6th of uh, January, uh, we're going to have a joint session of the Congress that accepts or rejects the electoral votes from the states. Uh, four years ago when I did this, uh, at least one Democrat House member objected to two different state delegations, as I recall, of the two the electors that were had been cast. Mm-hmm. No Senate member joined them, and so we just moved right on. But there is a process here where everybody, including the Congress and certainly the candidates for president, have rights and timing that needs to be honored. And in this case, uh, the, the the press has just con- just absolutely refused to honor that part of the process. Well, and I thought you handled it well yesterday. I watched uh, the, the interview, and, you know, it's, it's almost like this has become the litmus test of the, the media. They want you to first declare Joe Biden president-elect uh, before they can go on with the conversation. I think you handle that way. So there's a process. We'll let the process deal with itself. It looks like it's likely going to be a Biden administration, but let's let the process play out. Well, exactly. And, you know, yesterday, a little frustrating for me, there were so many other things that uh, I was more than willing to talk about. The Flynn pardon, which I which I'm, I, I agree with, what had just happened in Iran and the impact that had on uh, the accomplishments in the Middle East and the challenges uh, in the Middle East. But we couldn't get to any of those things because we had to talk about whether or not I was ready to pass the, the press litmus test, and I just wasn't wasn't uh, prepared to play that game. Well, let's move on to some of those other things, Senator uh, Blunt, because I, I want to talk about some of those. One is I think that while we, we make sure the process goes forward and that every legal vote is counted, I think that's extremely important. But at the same time, we've got to be looking at what a potential Biden administration might look like. And we now are getting a better understanding based upon some of the uh, selection, uh, he, the selections he uh, is making for his cabinet, and uh, some of those might have a difficult time getting through a Republican Senate. That is, if these, the Republicans maintain control with uh, the outcome of the Georgia election, he's going to have to moderate some of those selections, is he not? Well, I think absolutely, and the, the Georgia elections are so critical. I think it would be hard-pressed to find a day in at least 20 years when more was at stake than what happens uh, in Georgia on, on the uh, 5th of July. If we continue to control the Senate, suddenly there's a divided government, and also the Senate is the group that approves uh, presidential nominations, uh, and there will be some significant and, I think, appropriate feeling that the president has the right to name people who will help him get his work done, particularly if they're, they're bounded by the four years of that presidency as opposed to a lifetime judicial appointment or something like that. But he doesn't have the right to name just anybody. The Senate has a responsibility here. Uh, and, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders for Secretary of Labor uh, is is uh, is probably further than a Republican Senate would be willing to go. Other people will will meet that same, exceed the standard. Doesn't mean the president doesn't get to have help. It does mean the president uh, has to comply with the consent part of what happens in the Senate. I think the Democrats take over the Senate just as as uh, Senator Schumer has said they would. They will, according to him, change America and change the world. And that will start with the court system. It'll start with these presidential appointments. It'll 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 include packing the court. Uh, there's a lot at stake in Georgia, and I hope Georgia voters are thinking seriously about how much impact what they do uh, a month from now will have on the future of the country. Yeah, that election being January the fifth. I guess it's two months from now. Two months from now. Key and, uh, key election. It's going to make a big difference. Now the the issue. Um, where people are, con- I mean, there's there's a little, I mean, obviously, the there's discouragement with the outcome of the November election and the fact that it does appear that there's um, irregularities and manipulations. And But for those folks in Georgia, this election probably is one of the most important elections, as you said, that we've seen in history in terms of the the implications this has for so many aspects. Well, that's right. And to get my date straight, it is a month from now. It's the 5th of, of, of uh, January, and we're moving quickly toward that. But what will happen if you, if uh, to the, the, the tax policies that I think have made a real difference in the economy and the opportunity in the country, uh, our efforts in the courts to have judges who 
they say see their job as determining what the law and the Constitution say it says rather than what right. some judge thinks it should have said. Uh, the, the, look at what the Democrats have promised to do, raise taxes, uh, change the composition of every federal court that they can add judges to, Medicare for all, that means Medicare for none. Uh, as we, If you're depending on Medicare for now, you'd be in real trouble if uh, that happens, and so many other things that, they're, uh, that they won't be able to do with a Republican Senate, the country can still move forward, but it has to move forward in a much more measured uh, middle of the, the ideological spectrum kind of way than it would if Democrats are given everything. I think they'll change the Senate rules to where 51 of them can pass legislation. Uh, and, of course, you've got uh, Speaker Pelosi on the other side of the building uh, eagerly waiting to send that legislation over or get it from the Senate uh, and put it on uh, President Biden's desk if that's what happens. Yeah. And just to underscore, Senator, what you're talking about judges and packing the courts. I mean, just last week, on the, as I mentioned earlier in the eve, and we're going to talk about this later in the program, on the eve of Thanksgiving, where the court basically stepped in uh, to uphold the First Amendment freedom of churches in New York's in New York as a result of the overreaching arm there of Governor Cuomo. So that's that that type of stuff is at stake. Very fundamental freedoms, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. Those things hang in the balance. Uh, Senator, I want to move on. You mentioned this and I want to get your take on it. What happened in Iran and what may be happening as America moves away from this America first uh, foreign policy in which we have exerted our strength and we have demanded certain things, and we've, I, quite frankly, I think the world's been a safer place in the last four years. What's on the horizon under a Biden administration? Well, I, I think, uh, you know, what happened uh, in, uh, in Iran uh, to the, uh, the scientists, uh, the, we believe, I think everybody believes, intimately involved in moving toward a nuclear uh, Iran, uh, just shows the incredible uh, potential of what can happen if we do the wrong things in that part of the world and also calls attention to what the president has been able to accomplish. The Abraham Accords, Mm -hmm. uh, where uh, the the UAE, where Bahrain, where others are clearly moving uh, toward a relationship where Israel is part of the Middle East and part of the discussions in the Middle East, Uh, it would be a mistake uh, to embrace Iran again, uh, what the what the president's accomplished by uh, making China uh, perform at a higher and more acceptable standard if we're going to deal with them uh, economically and in other ways, what, what he's accomplished uh, with the uh, new uh, trade agreements between Canada, Mexico, and the United States, all significant steps in a new direction. This is not Uh, the world that the president found in January of 2017. It can't be a third Obama administration. Uh, They need to be thinking very carefully about how quickly you can destabilize a a foreign policy situation that in many places around the world has moved dramatically in the right direction yeah. and I don't, the, the, the last media, four years. The media has not given the president credit for what he's done in the Middle East. It's, it's, it's historic, without question. It's truly historic. Senator Roy Blunt, as always, great to have you on the program. Thanks for uh, stopping by today. Great to talk to you, Tony. All right, folks, don't go away. On the other side of the break, Cleta Mitchell joins us with an update from Georgia and what's happening down there in the Peach State. Peachy. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org slash Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org slash Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. 
In a recent poll, it was revealed that only 6% of Americans hold a biblical worldview. This research also indicated that Christianity's teachings on abortion, marriage, and homosexuality are not only misunderstood but seen as dangerous and subversive. In response to this trend, Family Research Council has released a new set of resources in our Biblical Worldview series. In addition to our full publications, which cover the topics of Christian political engagement, abortion, religious liberty, and human sexuality, FRC now offers helpful summaries of each publication in this series, as well as accompanying prayer guides to help you and your family pray through these important issues. And finally, our popular biblical principles for political engagement is now available in Spanish. All of these resources are free and available at frc.org worldview. Again, that's frc.org worldview. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain, and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Washington Watch, so good to have you with us. Let me remind you, don't miss the opportunity to take advantage of FRC's Limited Time Giving Tuesday $100,000 Challenge Match. And uh, we're actually starting a little early, beginning right now, a day early, to double your impact for faith, family, and freedom. Give us a call. Got folks standing by to take your call, 800-225-4008. That's 800-225-4008. Or go to TonyPerkins.com and donate today. Double your giving. If you were like me over the Thanksgiving weekend, um, well, I'm just going to be, I'm going to out myself. I didn't stay home locked in. I went and, in fact, we had a big family reunion. Uh, Yes, we did. Um, And we had a great time. We had a great time. Had a lot of good food, fellowship, hadn't seen family in a while. So it was a good, good time. But uh, the conversation was all about the election. What's happening? And people concerned, people not trusting the outcome, and with good reason. In fact, this issue is far from resolved. Joining us now to talk more about what is happening in Georgia as the recount is underway and a lot of things that raise more questions than we started with is Cleta Mitchell. She has 40 years' experience in election law, and she joins us now. Cleta, welcome to Washington Watch. Well, thank you so much, Tony. It's great to be with you, and I want to share with you that I also did not... uh isolate myself for Thanksgiving. We had a dozen people in our home, and we prayed, and we uh, enjoyed fellowship, and uh, we don't think that the government can tell us we can't do that. <laughs> I, I agree. And, I mean, we, you know, for those, we, we encourage those that had underlying maybe health issues to stay home, and we actually zoomed in a couple of people. But all of the younger folks, we all got together, and we had a great time. And yes. I, I think it's we, we need to make those decisions for ourselves. We don't need some yes. government bureaucrat or some overreaching governor to make that decision for us. But don't get me started on that, Cleta. Uh, <laughs> I'll spend the whole program on it. I want to talk about something more importantly that you've been up to your neck in, and that is the recount in Georgia. In fact, today filing uh, another demand on the secretary of state there to be forthright and come forth with information. Tell us about it. Well, Let's start with this. I can make this simple statement. The election in Georgia was not conducted in accordance with the legislative enactments, the duly enacted laws, the election code of the state of Georgia. And one of the worst parts of it was the whole absentee ballot program that was uh, determined by the secretary of state, not the legislature. 
And we believe that we, uh, I've been working uh, as a volunteer with the Trump campaign and the legal team uh, in Georgia. And we have asked today is the fifth time since November the 10th that we have asked the Secretary of State to conduct a, an audit of the signatures and verify that the signatures on the ballot applications, the, the absentee ballot applications, match the signatures on file on the voter registration cards, and then um, that those match the signatures on the absentee ballot envelopes. And he has so far refused to do that. So every time he does a recount, he, he first said he was going to do a, a thorough recount two weeks ago, no signature matching, and we asked for the recount under the statute because the margin is less than one half of one percent in Georgia, and we we have estimated based on the the the, the number the percentage of rejected ballots that is customary would mean that there should have been between thirty and forty thousand votes rejected ballots rejected because they didn't match and instead statewide even though you have a six-fold increase in the number of absentee ballots the rejection rate was 0.3 percent that is just simply it's it's not statistically possible right because it's not so, in keeping with any of the other elections including no. the including the primary election year. the 2018 right. general election and the 2016 so those numbers don't lie now uh, we've had uh, statisticians on before, and that says that doesn't necessarily point to fraud, but it's the smoke that leads to the fire of fraud. When you look at that, because statistically, those things just are not possible. Now, uh, Cleta, I, 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 for the benefit of our listeners, I, I just want to ask you a question. This may seem elementary, but some would say, well, you know, look, th- these laws is kind of nitpicking. Enforcing the laws that govern our elections are absolutely fundamental to the preservation of our republic. Well, not only that, Tony, you're 100% right. And this is one of the things that I said to our team on Friday. I said, we should have zero tolerance for violations of the law. The Constitution of the United States vests in the legislatures of the states the responsibility for determining the time, place, and manner for choosing federal officers. There's a separate constitutional provision that vests in the legislatures that the legislatures shall direct the manner by which presidential electors are to be chosen. Well, when the legislature of a state enacts a law and those provisions are violated repeatedly over and over in a myriad of ways and producing votes that are contrary to the statute, that is a violation of the U.S. Constitution. Yes. And we have evidence of at least 25 provisions of the statute that were violated and ballots accepted, cast, counted, included in the tabulation that are well over, well beyond the number of, of votes in this margin that gave the state to Joe Biden. I don't know how the Secretary of State can possibly certify with any degree of of accuracy the uh, election results in the presidential election. There are so many variables of illegal ballots that were allowed to be cast, failure to uh, do a variety of uh, just basic uh, integrity work to make sure that those voters were eligible to vote under the laws of Georgia. And so... We're going to be filing an even more robust petition later this week. But this particular thing, with the absentee ballots and the signature verification, we think that that's the first step to trying to get to the bottom of whether or not those absentee ballots were properly vetted and to ensure that they were cast by people who are duly registered in the state of Georgia. Uh, Cleta Mitchell, very quickly on your way out, what um, what's the time frame we're working with here? Well, you know, that's one of the problems in enforcing election laws is that the time frame is always so truncated after the election, uh, public policy being, you know, we want to get the results done quickly. But uh, we hope to, we filed this letter today. There's a recount that's ongoing. We have asked him to please include this segment uh, before he concludes the recount. And we hope to have our petition um, 
with all these other uh, illegalities prepared and ready to file in the next 48 hours. All right. And Thank ask you, for Cleta. emergency relief. We've got to leave it there. Folks, don't go away. We're back with more right after this. Since the 1973 Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision, Congress and many states have taken various actions to stop taxpayer dollars from funding abortions or the abortion industry. As early as 1976, Congressman Henry Hyde led the effort to ban federal funding for abortions. The federal Hyde Amendment, named after him, established the principle that abortion is not health care and therefore taxpayers should not be forced to fund abortions. Despite these efforts, the abortion industry still receives millions of dollars each year in taxpayer money. In 2019, Planned Parenthood, America's largest abortion provider, received $616.8 million in government funds. Family Research Council's newly updated pro-life map tracks how your state has taken action to stop taxpayer funding of abortions. Go to frc.org slash pro-life maps to see where your state stands in the fight for life. That's frc.org slash pro-life maps. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Tony Perkins, and you're listening to Washington Watch. And again, we've got folks standing by to take your phone call, 800-225-4008. If you would like to uh, to be a part of Giving Tuesday, we've got a $100,000 challenge match, and we're starting uh, a couple hours early. But you can double your gift to support faith, family, and freedom. Give us a call, 800-225-4008, or visit TonyPerkins.com. All right, as I mentioned at the top of the program, last week legislators in Pennsylvania have introduced a resolution that, among other things, calls upon Congress to declare the selection of presidential electors in Pennsylvania to be in dispute. There's one problem. Today is the last day of their session, and they have until about 11 o'clock tonight to pass it. Joining me now is one of the sponsors of the resolution, Pennsylvania State Representative Stephanie Borowitz. Stephanie, welcome back to the program. Of course. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. So this resolution, among other things, um, calls upon Congress to, to, to declare that the electors are in dispute in Pennsylvania, but it does some other things. But the, the, the key issue right now is, will there be time to pass this resolution before you adjourn tonight? Yeah, uh, we had a caucus call last night discussing that, and today would be the last day to be able to be called back in. Um, There's some discussion among our leadership that, you know, it takes three calendar days to have a resolution um, put on the floor, the House floor. Um, So there's there's some, you know, dispute about that. But, yeah, today is the last day, and they did not call us back in. Unfortunately, we can reintroduce this. Um, In our PA Constitution, we are a legislative body as of December 1st, although we are not sworn in until January. So um, we're in discussions about that and trying to get this, you know, pushed across the finish line. So what do folks in Pennsylvania need to be doing right now to help uh, those Republicans along that have introduced this resolution? Yeah, there were 26 uh, sponsors and co-sponsors of this resolution, and we worked very hard and want to represent the people. We want to fight for freedom. It's been pretty amazing to see and be working behind the scenes and to be part of the fight for freedom and liberty and truth. And truth. We're standing for what truth is. And so I want to encourage the people to first, obviously, be praying because we know this is a spiritual fight um, for freedom and liberty. And two, please be engaged. I know I'm getting flooded with emails. It's pretty amazing how many people we the people are really rising up and coming uh, standing up to the occasion. So I would encourage them to 
uh, get a hold of their state representatives, get a hold of leadership in Pennsylvania, um, and let your voice be heard. That this is a monumental time, and, and we need the people to rise up and speak. Is there a switchboard number there for the uh, for the leadership? I don't have that, but it's all just public information. All right. Um, so you know, I would just encourage them be engaged, uh, and I see that. I mean, it's it's very encouraging to see the people rising up for the occasion. And I was just telling my sister, I said, you know, we've had people at the state house, uh, you know, trying to come in and tell us the things that we shouldn't be doing, you know, and gun control and, uh, you know, people there for abortion and all the wrong reasons. And, and now it's neat to see, okay, the tables are turning and I'm seeing, you know, Christians and Americans standing up and fighting for liberty and freedom. So it's pretty neat to see. So I would think that if the the leadership here, the Republican leadership, because Republicans cr- control the legislature, you've got a Democratic governor, but you have uh, Republicans in control of the legislature, both houses, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? Senate yes, and sir. House. So the, I would think that the Republican leadership dragging their feet on this, this could affect them in the next um, legislative body, in the next legislative session when you elect your leadership. Absolutely. I mean, I've I've heard from multiple um, constituents and people in the state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth, that, listen, if you're not standing behind and fighting for freedom and liberty right now, we're taking notice and we are watching what you're doing. And um, and because we are the representatives of the people, we're just here to represent we the people. And that's become such a distorted thing in these positions. And it's such a shame that we've gotten to this place in our country, that our leadership, and I'm not picking on anybody specifically, I'm just saying in general, that leadership sees themselves as, as greater than, you know, the people that we represent. We are just mere servants and representatives of we the people going there to represent their values and, and fight for freedom and all the things that they want us to fight for, which is being made clear to us right now. Now, Stephanie, as what you have seen and heard, I know there's been some committee hearings on this uh, are are you concerned? I mean, are you convinced that there's enough there of irregularities and manipulation of the process to to overturn this election outcome? You know, I, what I experienced at the hearing that we uh, Senator Mastriano held in Gettysburg, of all places, which was pretty amazing to see, um, was eye opening to say the least. I mean, testimonies of USB cards, you know, being put into com- uh, computers and uploaded, um, poll watchers, numerous people testifying to being uh, kept out from poll watching, cured ballots in Democrat counties, but not in Republican counties. Um, and, and like I told um, my leadership last night, we've already seen, um, you know, a disregard for the rule of law in our PA Supreme Court, unconstitutionally declaring an extra three days on an election. Um, the Secretary of State sending out an email the night before about pre-canvassing, allowing pre-canvassing, which was against the law. And so we already have a huge situation on our hands of where the Secretary of State and the governor and our, um, you know, have gone rogue and, and completely disobeyed the rule of law in our PA Supreme Court. Um, so it's vital that we, I, I mean, I feel like we are justified in making sure that this is, it, it's acknowledged and the people see it, that this is in dispute. Yeah. And there's no way for us to allow that process to go forward with the certification. Well, I think you're doing the right thing. And, Stephanie, once again, appreciate your leadership. And thanks so much for joining us today on Washington Watch. Of course. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right, folks, uh, I'll have a phone number for you when we come back uh, for the uh, speaker there in Pennsylvania. And we're going to take a look uh, coming up at the Supreme Court ruling on the eve of Thanksgiving. Very positive development. Don't go away. We're back after this. Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has a three-part series titled, Three Ways to Read the Bible. This series shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth by observing the text of the Bible and applying it to your life. There is no better time than now to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible to see what it says about itself, God, and humanity. There's no better time than now to begin devoting time to the Lord and to seek out His meaning for you. This blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through the Bible amid the toils and troubles of today. 
check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but with your heart and mind as well. To learn more, visit frcblog.com slash ways to read. That's frcblog.com slash ways to read. When President Donald Trump announced his nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, critics were quick to point not to this qualified nominee's record, but rather to her religious affiliations as a reason she ought not be allowed to serve as a Supreme Court justice. In an increasingly secular culture, it is not only the media that views faith as problematic for those appointed to judicial positions. Senators, particularly Democrats, have inappropriately interrogated nominees with comments and lines of questioning spanning theology, congregation membership, and associations with faith-based nonprofits, all seemingly with the intent to discredit the nominees. Family Research Council recently released a publication addressing this important issue. To learn more about what the Constitution says about religious tests, visit frc.org slash religious tests. That's frc.org slash religious tests. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increasing pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org slash human sexuality. I'm Tony Perkins, and this is Washington Watch. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Parlor, it's at T. Perkins. And let me again remind you of, i uh, got folks standing by to take your phone call, 800-225-4008. If you'd like to get a jump on Giving Tuesday, we've got a $100,000 challenge match. It's right now, ready, beginning. Uh, we're getting a few hours uh, early jump on this. So to double your impact for faith, family, and freedom, Give us a call, 800-225-4008, or visit TonyPerkins.com. All right, with uh, the coronavirus cases starting to rise once again, in fact, we're hearing, uh, you know, warnings that it's going to rise again. It makes sense. You know, people get together, and, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, you're going to get, I mean, things that are contagious, they spread when people get together. It just, it, it happens. So, as a result, governments are starting to crack down with another wave of restrictions, some have never lifted them, but others are squeezing again. We've seen houses of worship basically boarded up, boarded up due to the, uh, the the regulations surrounding the coronavirus. And as you've heard me talk about many times, I think it's important how we deal with this now because in not only a, a second wave of the coronavirus, but other pandemics or emergencies that we might face. Where we leave off is where we will start again. That's why I'm so grateful for those that have been fighting for religious freedom. And on the eve of Thanksgiving, the Supreme Court um, basically gave a win to the First Amendment, freedom of religion, in basically clipping the wings of the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, in his patch quilt work of restrictions on churches, which actually made no sense. And as the court pointed out, uh, treated liquor stores, bicycle shops, and uh, other places with completely no restrictions or very limited restrictions compared to churches. Now, I've got a clip I want to play of uh, Governor Cuomo responding to the court's decision. I think that Supreme Court ruling on the religious gatherings is more illustrative of the Supreme Court than anything else. Uh, it's irrelevant from any practical impact uh, because the zone that they were talking about uh, has already been moved 
Uh, it expired last week. So I think this was really just an opportunity for the court to express its philosophy and politics. Uh, it doesn't have any practical effect. No practical effect. All about politics. Joining me now to talk about this is the attorney at counsel in this case, Joe Davis at Beckett Fund. They handled this case for the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn. Uh, Joe, welcome to Washington Watch. Uh, thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, so, Joe, this victory, no practical uh, effect, no practical implication here? Yeah, I don't think that's correct at all. Uh, the Supreme Court here was uh, laying down a marker. Governments are, are on notice that uh, the First Amendment doesn't go away just because there's a pandemic out there. In fact, it was a very strong order uh, protecting uh, Beckett's clients, which is the Good of Israel, uh, which is a, a, uh, an association of synagogues in New York City, and also the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn. Uh, who also had a number of churches that were affected by Governor Cuomo's orders. So I, I don't think it's correct at all to say no practical effect. Well, it's interesting. Gorsuch, in his concurring opinion, uh, wrote about the fact that uh, the governor changed his color code for Brooklyn and Queens, where the plaintiffs are located. Now, and I'm quoting from that, uh, that uh, concurring opinion, now those regions are yellow zones and the challenge restrictions on worship associated with orange and red zones do not apply. So the reasoning goes we should send the plaintiffs home with an invitation return later if need be. And he goes on to basically bat down that idea that the governor basically changed these rules while they were taking months to get to the Supreme Court and they needed to go ahead and address this. And I think you're right. I think they under they they address the underlying issue of the First Amendment freedom and that, as you said, it does not go away in time of crisis. Now, let me ask you this, Joe. This obviously is going to have implications for other jurisdictions. I know it's specific to this case in New York, but other governors have to be paying attention. That's right. And, and even sticking just with New York for a moment, you know, the, the governor, a couple of days before the Supreme Court issues its ruling, uh, goes back to the drawing board, redraws the line to try to exclude the parties that are there before him at the Supreme Court, uh, probably because he was worried about exactly what ended up happening, which is a loss for the Supreme Court. And the court was, was exactly right to go ahead and, and issue the injunction anyway. Um, in fact, at the very same press conference in which the governor uh, redrew the lines, he threatened to put the entire the entirety of New York City back into an orange zone. Uh, so th there's no doubt that this is an ongoing situation. The, governor's, uh, the governor has power. He's asserted the power to just continue uh, locking down different areas of the city as, as, his, uh, as, as his own lights dictate. And so there's, there's no doubt that the court was right to go ahead and, and issue the injunctions. In terms of other jurisdictions, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, New York was really an outlier here. This is one of the more extreme restrictions on, on religion that we're seeing across the country since the very earliest days of the pandemic. But as we're entering the fall and the winter, uh, you've seen uh, some other governments start to suggest that they're interested in locking back down. Uh, and this, this opinion from the court serves as a, a very important marker uh, that governors are on notice that they will, uh, the court will intervene if, if the restrictions discriminate against religion uh, as opposed to other activities that people engage in. Uh, uh, Joe, to be, to be clear, the, uh, the issue of religious freedom and the First Amendment, you know, it, it's, not a, um, it, it's, it's not a carte blanche that you can do whatever you want. But in this case, and in so many other cases, what we have is a, a disparity in treatment where you have, in this case, hardware stores, uh, acupuncture, liquor stores, bicycle repair shops, accountants, lawyers, insurance agents are declared essential, and so they can operate basically as normal, but churches are kept, regardless of the size of their facility, they're capped at a certain number, which clearly is a, uh, a, a, disparaging, a disparaging in the treatment. That's right. Nobody's saying that, uh, nobody's saying that the government can't take steps to try to, uh, to stop the spread of the pandemic. Of course it can and it should. Um, what we're saying is that it's entirely inappropriate for uh, churches and synagogues, houses of worship, to be effectively shut down entirely while all sorts of activities, secular activities, are, are allowed to go forward, you know, while following the, the churches and the synagogues will follow the same uh, neutral rules that other people have to follow, the masks, the distancing. And there's been no evidence that, uh, that religious worship is sort of uniquely contributing to the pandemic by any stretch. 
there was no evidence that any of the parties in this case had had any outbreaks at all since the, since the start of the pandemic. And so uh, you know, I think you're exactly right to point to things like percentage caps and things like that. It's just entirely unreasonable to say that um, a, a cathedral or a synagogue that can seat hundreds so hundreds of socially distanced worshipers should be capped at 10 or 25, which is what the governor was trying to do here. So, uh, Joe, I want to ask you a question, and, and my listeners have heard me bring this one up before, and if you can answer it, um, I'm going to send you a, a free coffee cup. Um, th- th- this is one of the things that gets me, is that, and, and you probably do a lot of traveling as well, but I travel a lot. Uh, in fact, I'll be on the airplane in just a few hours, and uh, probably every seat on the plane will be filled. And I've flown from coast to coast with every seat filled for, you know, three, three and a half hours. Why can we get on airplanes? And, and I know they're wearing a mask. And that's fine. Um, but we can do that. But we can't sit in a church for an hour or 90 minutes wearing masks and social distanced based upon the size of that facility. But we can sit elbow to elbow in airplanes. I think you're pointing at a, you know, a very uh, good illustration of, of the overall problem here, which is you've got government officials sitting back and saying, well, this activity is essential and religion is not essential. And you know, that's just not a judgment that the First Amendment uh, allows the government to make. Religious worship is uh, it's a core part of this country. The First Amendment is the, is the first freedom, of course. And so uh, to, to say that it's not essential is just not something that the Constitution allows the government to do. Now, a lot of people are criticizing this Supreme Court decision because it comes on the heels of a previous decision out of Nevada in which the decision went the other way before the new addition to the court, Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, but this has to be encouraging that we now have a majority on the court that is supportive of the First Amendment. So I think that's uh, that's right. It's, it's- is clearly a, an encouraging development, but I would hesitate to, to point too much at, at the change of personnel here. Uh, I think, you know, the, the striking thing about this opinion is there was a large degree of agreement among the justices about the basic principles here. Uh, and a lot, and even the dissenters in this case, uh, one of the, one of the justices that dissented was Chief Justice Roberts, but he dissented only on the ground that he would have sort of credited the governor's last minute uh, change in the zones. And he, he suggested that he might even agree that these uh, zones went too far and that the previous Nevada decision was uh, distinct. And then even with the other dissenters, uh, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan and Breyer, they also suggested that this was a very debatable case, and they relied a lot on the last-minute change in the rules. So I, I don't think this is a, a situation in which you talk things up to a, to a change of personnel in the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, these were um, – the, the court is, is – uh, takes the First Amendment very seriously, and this opinion is a, a great example of that. Well, I am uh, I'm glad that the court didn't take that bait in terms of the the governor changing at the last minute, because we've seen other jurisdictions do the same thing. You know, you have you know this is months in the pipeline uh, to get all the way to the Supreme Court, and then at the last minute, eleventh hour, they change the rules to you know keep themselves from being restricted uh, in their exercise of this authority. This way, I think the court has come out with a very clear message, and other executives are going to take note of this before they implement policies in the future. So I think this is a very significant, very important, and, and once again, grateful for the Beckett Fund and other religious freedom organizations that are out there pressing these cases. Well, we appreciate that support, and, and I completely agree, especially in the coronavirus context. It's a bit like playing whack-a-mole. I mean, the, these... Um, Governments are, you know, governing by executive order. They change, they can change them sort of at whim. And so, uh, you get all the way up to the court and then they try to change the rules at the last minute. So it's, it's an important marker, uh, for that reason. And then, you know, even more so for the broader reason of, of uh, establishing that the First Amendment doesn't dissolve just because there's a pandemic out there. So one final question for you, uh, Joe, as the, uh, the, the, the practical implications of the Supreme Court ruling for the churches in New York. What's going to happen next? Yeah, so the practical implication is the uh, governor is has been ordered not to enforce these 10, uh, 10-person caps and 25-person caps while the case is being litigated. So uh, the case is going back down to the lower courts. We're going to uh, uh, litigate them. 
um, try to make sure that the churches and the, and the synagogues can stay open, the houses of worship can stay open, uh, you know, not subject to discriminatory rules. Our, our clients are uh, willing to follow capacity limitations that were in place before the governor's new discriminatory order. And uh, that's what we'll be uh, arguing for in the, back in the lower courts. So what do you think the time frame of that will be? Uh, the cases are proceeding relatively quickly. I think we'll get a decision from the lower courts in the next couple of months. And uh, depending on what happens, uh, the case could be back before the Supreme Court uh, in the new year. Let, let me uh, – I said it was the last question, but I'm going to ask another one. Because this sure. is this is important here just as the court took up – this and and made this temporary ruling if for instance the and i don't think it's going to happen but let's say new york decided in the next uh you know 30 45 days to drop these restrictions while your case is still pending before the court do you press forward with that court or with that case uh for future purposes or is the case dropped yeah i think that's something that uh will have to be seen on a on a Going forward basis, and I should also I should also point out that we were counsel at the Supreme Court, um, and aren't representing uh, Good of Israel back in the lower courts. So that's you know not a decision uh, at the moment that we'd be involved in, but I, okay. I, that we'd be advising the client on. But I would say that um, you know the the important thing is that the churches and synagogues want to open. They're not out here to prove political points, uh, to score political points. They want to serve their parishioners, serve their congregants. Um, and yeah, that's what the, that's what they're seeking in the lawsuit. Yeah. Well, I, I again, I appreciate the work that uh, Beckett does and other religious freedom uh, law firms, and, and encourage you to to press forward so that uh, the next time around, when the government wants to exercise this authority for whatever reason, uh, we have set uh, clear, clear uh, limitations to that authority when it comes to these fundamental uh, constitutional freedoms. Uh, Joe Davis, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. All right. And, folks, to find out more about the work that the Beckett Fund does, you go to TonyPerkins.com and follow the links over. And, you know, we, we have a number of these groups on, First Liberty, ADF, Beckett. Um, if you support them, thank you. Encourage you to continue to support those organizations. The work that they do is absolutely fundamental and will only increase in importance, especially uh, if we do see a Biden administration in the future. And, you know, again, for churches, I think, look, we need to be prudent, need to take the necessary steps to protect our congregations, pastors. If you, you know, encourage those at risk in at risk categories to worship in alternative ways. But our churches need to be open and and we do not need these arbitrary restrictions placed on our churches when Liquor stores and other places can operate without restriction, but churches being limited because they're not essential. Look, there comes a time we just need to move forward and do what we know to be right. If we have to suffer the consequences, we will. Prudent along the way, protecting our people, but obeying God rather than man. All right, folks, out of time. Thanks so much for joining us again. We've got folks standing by to take your call, 800-225-4008. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where it says you've done everything you can do when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand. By all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at one 866 372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.